If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in 2 Timothy this morning, continuing in on our series. Uh, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the campus pastor here and filling in for Blake this morning and a joy to be with you guys. Uh, as we jump into 2 Timothy and as we look on a passage about purity this morning, uh, I want to simply begin and ask you guys a simple question. It's this. When was the last time that you told a simple white lie? When was the last time that you creatively spun the truth in such a way that it made you look good, even though it may not have been entirely accurate? As I was looking through this passage this morning, I was reminded of a bit that Jimmy Fallon did on The Tonight Show a little while ago, in which on uh, Twitter he pushed out this hashtag, my dumb lie. And within minutes, instantly, as people began to tweet back in, it became a worldwide viral trend on Twitter as people began to send in their own confessions of their dumb lies. So I want to give you guys four of my favorite ones, all right? Here we go. One person wrote in, I told people I tore my rotator cuff rock climbing, but I really tore it scooping ice cream that was too hard. <laughs> Personally, I go, if that actually happened, I think one should own that because what a fantastic story that would be, right? But a spin of the truth because we were worried about how it would make us look. Or how about this one? I told my son that his belly button was a reset button and that if he had behaved rudely, I'd push it, it, it so he'd have to start back as a baby again. <laughs> Parenting tidbits this morning at Southwood, right? Or how about this one? Sometimes when I order Chinese, I muffle the phone and say, one sec, what did you want? And order myself a second entree and some crab lagoon, all right? How about this last one? Got embarrassed that I used the elevator to go down one level, so I limped out to not look lazy. <laughs> you guys all laugh because these lies are re as ridiculous themselves as the cover-up to them, right? An elevator and one flight, and so you begin to limp off, although you didn't limp on. I think everyone sees through that, right? Claiming that a shoulder being torn out of the rotator cuff because of rock climbing and when it was just an, a scoop of ice cream, Right? There's something in every single one of us that has this element of pride and reputation that we want to appear like we have it all together, that we want to appear as something that we're not. It's true for me and it's true for every single one of us. And so we spin the truth. We tell white lies. We tell stupid little dumb lies. And maybe it's not lies themselves. Maybe it's indiscretions that we hide over or secrets that we keep so that no one would know if they truly knew what had happened, where I was and what I had done. For every single one of us, we want to keep up a perception, we want to keep a reality that is Facebook sterile and appropriate, but doesn't at all match really what's going on in our lives. And so Paul is going to come at us this morning on a passage about purity that's going to be incredibly challenging. And for every single one of us, as we spin lies, as we have little indiscretions, there's a part of us that really thinks it's not a big deal. They're just small lies. They're just small indiscretions. And so the question we really wrestle with as we think about purity, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to continue to deny something or continue to hide something? Is it really worth it to pursue purity at all cost? For many of us, we go, no, which is why our lives look the way they do. Mine including and yours as well. But for every single one of us, what Paul is going to say is that purity is worthwhile. And so what Paul will do for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 to 26, is he's going to define what purity is for us. He's going to highlight the drive that ought to provide the why behind our pursuit of purity. And then lastly, he's going to show us how to develop purity. We're going to really zero in on verses 20 to 22. We're going to camp out there because there's enough meat there to just zero in there this morning. 
verses 20 to 22. And really, as Paul begins for us in verse 20, and as he starts out for us to help us define the what of purity and a definition of purity, really, our passage connects back to verse 19. So I want to pick us up at the second half of verse 19 that really ties us directly into what we're going to look at this morning. Verse 19, the second half of it, Paul tells us, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. But really, as as Paul begins to define purity for us, he's going to first give us a call. And what he says in verse 19 is that every single one of us is to abstain from wickedness. That's the expectation upon the people of God if they have a relationship with God and if they're a part of the church body. And what I love about verse 19 and what he makes clear here is that for a lot of the books, sometimes Paul's writing to Timothy as a leader. And so some of his charges are for Timothy, the leader of the church. But what he does here in verse 19 is not just for the leader. But it's for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. That the expectation for the entirety of the church body is a pursuit of purity that Paul is going to define for us. He's going to say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. That the first thing we get here as Paul begins to define purity for us is that it is a call to abstain from wickedness. But what I want to say at the very beginning this morning and we'll come back to at the end of this morning is that purity and our pursuit of it is never about simply about avoidance. It's never about simply a retreat away from wickedness, but it's going to be about a pursuit of something as well, which is why what Paul does next for us in verse 20 is he shows us a picture, not just of the avoidance of sin, but he's going to show us a picture of what purity really looks like, which is more than anything, it's about a distinction. It's not merely about avoidance, but it's primarily about a distinction. And so notice the picture that Paul highlights for us beginning in verse 20 when he says this. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and an earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. What Paul will do for us in verse 20 here is that he'll give us a picture, and it's a picture of hospitality. Uh, one of the things, and the many things that I love about my wife is that she's an amazing host, and she loves to host. And so even when we got married, in the midst of our registry, there were all of these serving dishes that I thought, Lord, like, why? Like, why do we have all of these things, Right? Why would we ever use all of this? And I promise you that we use all of it all the time, all right? Uh, My wife loves to host, and it's one of the things I love most about her. And what Paul will do here in verse 20 is he's going to give us a picture of hospitality. And so what he says in verse 20 is that in a large house, there are a series of different kinds of vessels that will be used for hospitality, used for serving. But there's two different primary kinds of vessels. He says that there are some that are made of gold and silver as metals, and there are some that are made of wood and earthenware. Then he also makes a contrast and he says that there are some for honor and there are some for dishonor. And what Paul is saying in this picture is he says that the vessels that are gold and silver are for honor, that they're distinct, they're set apart, they're special. And then the vessels that are wood and earthenware are for dishonor, meaning they're just common, they're run of the mill. They're what you would use hosting in everyday life with your family itself. But when guests come over, you bring out and you break out the china. Because what we recognize in hospitality is that the nature of the materials always highlights the nobility of the vessel. That the nature of the materials always highlights the nobility of the vessel. And so when you have guests come over, you bring out the china, you break out the best. One of the the other things that you need to know about our home, and our friends know this, is that uh, we take our ice cream like very seriously in our home. It's almost like a religion, which I can't say as a pastor, but I'm pretty serious and have set convictions about the ice cream that we have in our home, all right? And so in our home, we really only allow one primary kind of ice cream to come into our home that's approved and and in a sense set apart, and that's Bluebell. Uh, Because Bluebell comes forth from cows that have descended from heaven. (laughs) 
unless they have listeria, and then I don't know what happened there, all right? And, and so as we bust out the bluebell, and as my wife, in the midst of her hospitality, serves up the bluebell, we will, in one dinner party, be completely wiped out of all bluebell in our home. And so there are times, if I'm honest with you, which I'm about to be, I've thought about why not serving a different ice cream like Blue Bunny, right? Like, <laughs> that is descended from the netherworld, right? Like, like, bunnies don't even make ice cream, so I'm not really sure what's happening with the Blue Bunny brand, and if you own that, I'm so sorry, all right? But we all recognize that in hosting, the nature of the material is always highlights the nobility because we use the best stuff, the best materials for the best purposes in a set-apart and special way. When guests come over, we break out the different china, unless you're a young family, in which now we just break out paper goods because we don't want little kids breaking china, right? I don't matter how special of a guest you are in our home these days. But when guests come over, you always break out the best stuff because the nature of the materials always highlights the nobility of them. And the more noble, the more special they are, the more distinct and set apart you are in the way that you use them. And so what Paul is doing in this picture of purity for us is highlighting that the nature of the materials always sets up the nobility of the vessel and therefore a distinct use of that vessel. The more uh, special the nature, the more special the nobility, and therefore the more special of a distinction for how you use it. And Paul's drawing a picture here to make the point that not just in hospitality, but the same is true in our purity in our lives as well. That our purity sets up, or we're going to find here in a minute, our nobility and our distinction of use for God himself. That our purity matters. Our purity matters. And so one of the things I want to ask you this morning as you think about your own lives is, is really what have you patterned your life after? Because as we think about hospitality, it's really easy to see how this works. But as we think about our purity, it's a little bit harder. How do we know if we're walking in purity? What is our purity determined by? And the next thing I want to show you guys is I think it's determined by our conformity, which is why Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, one of the simplest passages, one that you probably have memorized if you haven't, it'd be a great one to memorize this morning, and it's this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Your purity is determined by your choice of conformity, the way that you pattern your life. And so my question this morning is, we jump into this topic of purity and think about its definition. My, my question is simple, and it's this this morning as we begin. What have you conformed your life to? Does your life match the patterns, the thought processes, the activities of the world? Or has it been patterned after the thoughts, the activities, the patterns of the Lord? As the will of God has been revealed to us in our lives. Because the reality and the challenge for us as a people of God is that sometimes the church, frankly, doesn't look that much different than the world at large. And for us individually, myself including, I know I make choices at times that look no different than the world at large. Our purity is determined by our distinction and the choice of our conformity. And so as we begin this morning, my question is simply this. Where is it in your life that you've cracked open the door to compromise and you've begun to pattern your life just like the world? Where is it? Maybe it's in the boardroom in your workplace where you're making financial decisions and you're fudging numbers. Maybe it's in the bedroom and maybe the decisions you're making online or the decisions that you're making with the person, realizing you know that you've gone beyond the boundaries of what God has asked for and what he's revealed. Maybe it's in the area of your schoolwork, realizing you're cheating or you're stepping across a boundary that you know has been laid down, not just by the Aggie code of conduct, but by what the Lord has revealed in terms of who he is and what he's called his people to be. The reality is there ought to be a heaviness because for every single one of us, as we sang 
We're all in need of a savior. Every single one of us is still groaning and still struggling. None of us are pure. None of us are perfect. None of us have figured it out. None of us have arrived. Every single one of us should have our knees feel like they've been taken out because for every single one of us, we've opened and cracked the door to compromise. And we think it's not a big deal. We think it's not going to hurt, but it will. And so what Paul will do as we transition into the next verse is he's going to show us not just the definition of purity, but he's going to highlight for us the drive of purity. What ought to motivate us to pursue purity? Uh, for Marcy and I, we have uh, two kids. Uh, we have a six-year-old and a four-year-old right now. Uh, and our four-year-old, who is just precious and uh, boisterous, uh, someone uh, said this week that he's like a little evangelist, but what he's most passionate about right now is a character named Larry Boy in VeggieTales, all right? And so uh, for us young families, you recognize this. Uh, if you are in college or single or married without kids, there's one primary difference between your life and mine right now, and that's this. You get to watch 50 different movies or listen to 50 different songs. I listen to the same movie and the same song 50 different times, all right? Our kids just get locked on things, all right? And right now, our boy especially, uh, he's locked on to VeggieTales. He's locked on to this character named Larry Boy. And so he's got like two plungers that have these red bottoms because they're part of the ears of Larry Boy. That's our home right now, all right? And somewhere along the way, we also stumbled, and I would say regrettably so, into the fact that Larry Boy has a soundtrack, all right? He has an album, all right? And so in the last month, I cannot tell you the number of times, it's probably around 50, that the Larry Boy soundtrack has been playing in our home. And now on that album, there's one song, and in that one song that's a part of that one album, there's one set phrase that they seem to have locked onto that they keep singing all the time, all right? And it's not the whole song, it's not even the whole album, it's this one phrase, and here's how it goes. It's very, very simple. It goes like this, knock, knock, who's there? And the answer back is temptation, all right? They say it all the time, all right? It's like three times at the breakfast table. It's another five times at the dinner table. And in a message this week about purity, I was like, Lord, what are you doing in my life, all right? And so we all laugh, but in the midst of that song being played and being repeated back to me all week long, in the midst of this passage, I was thinking, you know what? My kids in VeggieTales are absolutely right. Around every corner, temptation is just knocking at the door as the door is being cracked open to compromise. And every single time, it's absolutely true. And for a lot of us where that door has been open to compromise, where we've gone too far in a situation, we've looked at something we ought not look at, the question becomes, the hit us is, well, why does it really matter now? Why not just keep going even further? For some of us where it's not just the door has been cracked open to compromise, but for some of us, the door has been flung open to compromise and we've stepped into situations that we never imagined we would have. And whether the compromise seems to us small or it seems to us in the world large, either way, the same thing goes on in our hearts and our minds, which is why does it matter to pull back now? Why not press a little further in? Why should we be driven to purity at all? Why does it matter at all? And so Paul will lay that answer down explicitly, clearly in verse 21. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. The principle that Paul is highlighting here is this, that our purity determines our nobility. And specifically, our nobility for service. That if we will abstain from wickedness, if we will pursue purity, then we will be this kind of vessel that he describes four different ways. He says a vessel for honor, a vessel uh, that is sanctified, that is useful to the master, that is prepared for every good work. And so the flip is also true, right? The opposite is also true, that if we've not 
uh, abstain from these things, if we've not gotten rid of these things, then we are not going to be a vessel for honor. We're not going to be a vessel that's sanctified. We're not going to be a vessel that's useful to the master. We're not going to be a vessel that's ready for every good work. Again, our purity determines our nobility for service. Uh, after doing nine years of college ministry uh, here in this town, every single point, and it's about this point in the year typically or later on in the spring, there's a story that gets told, and it gets told in different kinds of ways, but it always gets told eventually, not just of college guys living in a house, but even of college girls living in a house, and it's typically a story about rats, all right? And they come and they invade all different kinds of ways. Uh, It's usually sometimes for some, it's a story about a rat that has invaded the pantry. Uh, For others, it's a rat that's invaded a garage where the sleeping bags are being stored. I heard a story this week about a rat that had invaded and was living in a barbecue grill, okay? And so your stomach just turns, all right? And typically what happens, even the girls themselves, they end up calling the boyfriend or they end up calling the dad. And no matter whatever kind of Terminex or whatever kind of pest control tactics that you take, when that rat has showed up and you look at that pantry or that barbecue grill or that garage with the sleeping bags again, they are never the same to you, right? They're never the same. There's a contamination that has happened and it doesn't matter what you do. You never look and you never feel as safe and comfortable again, period. Rats are a very, very freaky thing, all right? But I think this image really of what really I think Paul is trying to say here is that impurity for us really diminishes our nobility and our place in service to the Lord. That just as uh, we never look at those things in the same way again, so much so that I think our purity determines our nobility, that God can redeem us, that God will redeem us, God can restore us as well, but our purity matters. Some of you will object and you'll say, wait, wait, what about all of those pagan kings that God used immeasurably to turn human history? Or what about King David and Solomon, uh, who had incredible immorality, incredible impurity, and yet God used them magnificently? Trey, you're saying to me that our purity determines our nobility for service, but as I look at the scriptures, I see case after case. Uh, the disciple Peter as well, who denied Jesus three times, I see case after case after case of God forgiving sin forgiving failure, forgiving impurity, and still utilizing men and women for his purposes? And my answer back is absolutely yes. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of what God does in our lives. And so God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants. And God can redeem any sin and restore us from any sin. But the reality is there are Times in those lives of those men and women that in the midst of their immorality, in the midst of their impurity, it was one of the least useful periods of their life. In the case of David, in the midst of his adultery, murder, in the case of Solomon and his eventual idolatry, not only were those least useful periods of their lives, but those periods, although God forgave them, they had consequences. The kingdom was taken from David and given to another. The kingdom was split. That though God forgives, though God redeems, there are consequences for our sin. And so sometimes as we think about purity, especially if we're strong on the grace of God, which we as a church are, it can compound it even more to think, well, why ought I to not just press even further into compromise and into impurity? If God will forgive and if God will redeem, then why not press even further? And I think one of the things that we're going to see here that I think Paul is trying to drive us to see is that our purity does matter. Our purity impacts our nobility. It impacts our opportunity to serve the Lord himself. 
I think for many of us, the struggle that we have is that we don't really believe that our character matters more than our skills or our talents. For many of us, I think as we think about our lives, uh, whether that's in a workplace setting, whether that's even in a ministry or church setting, or whether that's in our family, we really truly believe that our character, or that our character is not as important as our skills and our talents. I think we value productivity more so than purity. And often cases, we take our impurity and we think that our productivity can obscure over or cover over or make up for our impurity. And the reality is you see that exemplified every single place that you look. Uh, sports is the prime example. Uh, if you can catch a, catch a touchdown, score touchdowns, or if you can sack a quarterback and you have supreme talent and skill, we will often look the other way in terms of character deficiencies. But if you're just like every other player, then your character does matter. But if you're supremely talented, if you can really do something that no one else can do, then we will look the other way. Which is why as a Dallas Cowboys fan, this week has been an interesting one. Uh, last week, our star stud receiver, Des Bryant, was injured, injured his knee on a Sunday night game. And all injured players are to show up on Monday uh, for treatment and for MRIs of their injuries. But Des Bryant was a no-show all Monday. He was called, he was texted, he was pursued by front office and by players, and not a, no response. He went AWOL. Not just for 24 hours, but for 48, because on Tuesday he did the exact same thing again. Leaving a head coach of a football team answering media questions about Des Bryant's injury, saying, we're still evaluating the injury. Well, yeah, you're still evaluating it, but you have no MRI, and you don't even know where the player is, but he was covering for the player. And then finally, later in the week, it comes out, as it always does, that this guy had just gone AWOL, seemingly for well-intentioned reasons, because he was fearful that his knee would shred and that his season was gone, and so he didn't want to face the music. But I can guarantee you he was treated differently because he was supremely talented and supremely gifted, and we don't want to upset the guy compared to just a normal player whose talent is not so unparalleled. In sports, in politics, in church world, In your workplaces, those that have supreme talent and abilities often get a pass as to character deficiencies. But what you can't get away from here in 2 Timothy 2 is that what Paul is saying and what the Lord is driving us is, irrespective of what you see in a fallen world, irrespective of what every arena of our lives often is showing us, character matters. Character matters. And it matters more than gifts. It matters more than abilities. Your purity matters more than your productivity. It matters more because your purity determines your nobility and service to the Lord. And so let me just ask you this morning, as you think about your own life, is it, if you're honest, as you think about your compromises, as you think about where you've slipped, how much does your character really matter to you? How much do you really prize and protect and value it and are driven to the pursuit of it? Or is it a lesser value to you? Has what you've seen in athletics and politics and the workplace convinced you of your own life as well that your gifts, your talents, your productivity matters more than your purity? I want to push against that this morning to go, no, no, your character matters significantly. Like your character is going to be the foundational requirement for your own opportunity to walk and serve the Lord. Your character matters more than anything else. It's time to stop compromising. It's time to stop undervaluing what that piece of your life means and its significance. Paul's going to say it's the foundation. It's the primary venue that determines your nobility for service to the Lord. Your character matters. And if it really matters, then the question becomes, then how do we go about developing it? 
If, it really, if we're really driven towards it, if we really do value it, then the question is, how do we go about developing it? And I think as we think about developing purity, as we think about developing our character, I think we have some really weird ideas about character and about purity. This reminds me of a, a few high school guys uh, that I was uh, in the same age with when we went through high school a little while ago. Um, and they decided to take a few ladies to prom, and they did something very, very different. Uh, they took these ladies to prom, and they were going to take them out to a fancy, fancy restaurant. And so they anticipated out ahead uh, what they would order food-wise, what the ladies would order food-wise. And so they anticipated out ahead what the bill was going to be for the night in the restaurant for the food. And so anticipating the total of the bill, they also anticipated the tip that they would pay. And so what they ended up doing that night was very, very different. Uh, as they set down, they ordered drinks. And as the waiter brought back the drinks to the table, the guys had laid out a series of $1 and $5 bills that was the tip for the evening on the edge of the counter. And the waiter is bringing the, the drinks back, places them down, and says, what in the world is this? What's going on here? And they very calmly just explain, this is your tip for the evening. We would like you just to understand where you are in terms of your service towards us. And we want to be very clear and upfront with you about that. Uh, and the guy kind of spun back on his heels and was like, are you serious? This is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. In which one of the guys then pulls back a $5 bill and says, never question the customer. Never. <laughs> all right. That was strange. All right. But if we're honest, I think every single one of us views purity in the exact same kind of way. As if our purity is a score that we have in our life, and the only thing we can do is just maintain the highest score that we possibly can, because it's going to go in one direction only as it just dips and dips further in life. There's nothing that waiter could do to get the money back. I think for some of us, as we think about our purity and our compromises in the past, we think there's nothing we can do to get that money or that purity back. I think what Paul is going to say here in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22 and on is, that's not at all how purity works. The purity is much more like a muscle that needs to be exercised and developed that can atrophy or that can get developed. And it's not a score that we have on a test. That's not how it works at all. In fact, it doesn't just go one direction. It can go two directions, like a muscle that can atrophy or can get developed. And so notice what Paul says. I want to give you guys three principles as to how we develop our purity here in a second. But notice what he says in verse 22. For a lot of you guys, a very, very familiar verse. He says, Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Verse 22 is a series of commands that are absolutely significant and absolutely insightful. What he says first is, Now flee from youthful lust. It's the classic run away from danger verse, right? Those desires that we have that are for illegitimate longings and illegitimate routes, he says, you've got to run away. You've got to get away. You've got to flee from those things. Run fast. The reality is, as we said from the very beginning of the morning, as we pursue our purity, it's never just about avoidance, which is why verse 22, the first half alone, if it was just about fleeing, that alone, if that's all we did, we'd be in really a lot of trouble really fast. Because that's really not how purity is pursued. It's not just a flee away from something, but it's a run towards something, which is why he says next, not only flee from youthful lust, but pursue, uh, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. That our pursuit, our development of purity is, and on one hand, a running away, a fleeing from one thing. On one hand, it is a defensive set of measures, but on the other hand, it's an offensive pursuit of something as well. That if all you have is the defensive measures, then you're going to be in trouble really, really fast. Um, that's why I think diets never, never work, right? Let me take everything that you love, like your bluebell, for example, for me, right? Let me take everything that you love to pursue and eat, like Dr. Pepper's bluebell, Mexican chips, those are just mine, all right? And let me strip them from you, all right? And let me let you just suffer, all right, without them, okay? 
That's why diets never work. One, you never get very far. Two, you end up going back to the things you love. And three, you've made everyone else in your life absolutely miserable, right? I often have felt like if someone was going to go on a diet that was a coworker, like, could I be involved in that decision? Because not only will they be miserable, but I'm going to be miserable for however long this diet goes, right? Because it's just so hard. That if all we're going to do with a diet or all we're going to do with purity is the removal out of certain things without the substitution of something even more enticing, we're dead in the water. We are absolutely dead in the water. Defensive measures are helpful. It's helpful to create boundaries in our lives. It's helpful to create a a series of fences so that there's areas that we don't go. Uh, That uh, for someone who struggles with alcoholism to show up and watch sports at a bar, probably not a good decision, right? Uh, There are certain fences that we erect that put us in places that we have a chance to fight sin and to fight temptation. Accountability software on our computers and phones is helpful. There are certain choices and fences that we can build that are helpful, but if that's all we do, It's just a matter of time before we cross the fence and we cross the boundary. Which is why the first principle I think about how we develop our purity is that you develop your purity not by passivity. The first principle I want to give you guys as we think about how we develop our purity is that it is not developed by passivity. It's not developed by inactivity. It's not developed by defense measures only. Flip side is true that it's developed by activity. It's, it's, It's developed by the engagement and the pursuit of something. I told you guys a while ago, uh, this is at least, I'll show you guys a picture in a minute, but this is one of my favorite verses on this idea. This is the way Peter puts, I think, a lot of what Paul has been trying to say. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 8, this is what Peter says. He says, applying all diligence with all of your energy, with all of your activity, with all of your might, applying all that you have in your faith supply or add to that faith moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, add to that knowledge. And in your knowledge, add to that self-control. And in your self-control, tack on top of all of that perseverance. And let's just keep adding on top. And in your perseverance, I want you to add godliness. And in your godliness, I want you to add brotherly kindness. And lastly, on top of your brotherly kindness, I want you to add on love. For whatever reason, I see Second Peter chapter 1, I see Peter like a workout gym coach who's looking at different muscle groups, all right, of a guy who just walked in, all right? And saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's where we're going. We're going to add this to a different muscle group. We're going to add this. We're going to add this. We're going to move with all of our energies in this direction. See, to pursue the growth and to develop anything in life, there has to be a removal of certain things and a pursuit of certain things. Uh, this past summer when I guest spoke at one point, I told some of you guys and showed you guys a picture of what we call the rage cage that's in our backyard. I might have falsely said I'll become Jason Bourne in a matter of months, which clearly, <laughs> clearly hasn't happened. All right. Uh, but here's the other reason why it probably hasn't happened because uh, where there had been activity uh, for the first half of June and July. There now became inactivity in this rage cage for the next couple months and specifically the next couple weeks. Last two weeks, here's what's happened to the rage cage. Uh, it's where we began to hung our hammock, all right? <laughs> the weather has turned beautiful. It's so nice. The kids want to be on the hammock. We needed a place to put the hammock up, right? What's the point of this? That in inactivity, nothing gets developed, nothing gets grown. That if it's just about getting rid of certain food groups, that's not going to get us going forward in terms of health and growth. There has to be the added engagement of our muscles and our resources and exercise. And specifically, here's the other thing. In our disengagement, in our inability to actually engage and be active, we set ourselves up for the greatest of temptations. Because it's in boredom and it's in leisure that we find ourselves most tempted and the door gets cracked the widest at times. In fact, I want you guys uh, to think about King David himself. Uh, Where did temptation first find him? 
As Samuel tells in terms of the story of David and Bathsheba, when the kings go out to war, where was David? Sleeping in his bed until the afternoon, then he strolls out on the palace roof where he looks out on Bathsheba, and then we're going to have lust, we're going to have adultery, and we're going to have murder, and then we're in a whole host of trouble, right? But it started by inactivity. Uh, I like this quote, sins of commission are often the results of sins of omission. That we end up choosing to do something we didn't intend to do because we first ended up doing, not doing something that we were supposed to be doing. That just avoiding the things that we're not supposed to do is never going to get us moving forward on purity because we've got to add on the things that we're supposed to be doing, the activity that we're supposed to be engaging in. Uh, I love this. Speaking of King David's situation as well, this is one of my favorite quotes. It comes like this. It says, Our greatest battles against temptation don't usually come when we're working hard. They come when we have some leisure, when we've got some time on our hands and when we're bored. I know that's true for me, especially, and I think that's true for you as well. That it's not when we're running 80 miles an hour and we're, we're just barely drowning that sometimes we get in the most trouble. It's when things begin to slow down. We have some time on our hands. Temptation finds us and we think, well, why not? And so for some of us, as you think about your lives, as you think about developing yourself and pursuing purity, I want to challenge you to think about how are you engaging your time? That's not just about avoiding sin, but it's about the proper engagement. Are you pursuing righteousness, love, and peace? Are you running after those things? Are you developing those areas? Are there areas of your life that you're looking to grow and develop? Uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been spending some time just trying to memorize the book of 2 Timothy, which has added some structure to my time in the Lord. It's added some, a goal to pursue and something to build on that has been really, really helpful. After kind of a season of feeling like, what am I doing in my time of the word? And what am I growing for? What am I walking on towards? What am I trying to develop and move towards? It's been a helpful uh, engagement and a tracking of something to build on. So for you, where is it you're trying to grow? As, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, what are the areas that you're trying to develop in and grow? Because our pursuit of purity is not just the avoidance of immorality, but it is the pursuit of righteousness in the Lord himself. So as we begin to realize that our development of purity isn't just by passivity, the other thing I want you guys to see is it doesn't occur without community. That the development of our purity does not occur apart from community. Notice again what he says in verse 22. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I love that. That it's not just the avoidance of certain things and the engagement of certain things, but it's also doing all of that within the set of a community. Let's doing it together. You are most vulnerable when you're bored and you're most vulnerable when you are isolated and alone. That's why I think uh, 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 Peter says like this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. He says, resist him, speaking of the devil, which is, I don't know why I put it as a capital him, all right? But resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. I think 1 Peter 5 verse 9 is incredibly insightful because what Peter is saying is he recognizes that for his people that were encountering difficulty, struggle, and even temptation, they had a tendency to think they were the only ones who were dealing with this. That no one else was dealing with what they were dealing with. No one else could even understand it. And what Peter says is, no, 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 <laughs> to his audience, what you're going through, a whole host of others are as well. And so stop with the isolation that pulls you out of community and that gives, frankly, a breeding ground for sin and a power to sin when it's kind of held in the darkness and away from people. Peter says, no, no, build your life with a kind of authenticity and transparency so that others see that what you're dealing with, they're dealing with as well. That you and they are not alone. I think that's absolutely powerful for us. 
that we recognize that we're not alone. Um, I think for some of us, uh, therefore, the opportunity and the challenge this morning is towards community. That you cannot struggle and develop in your purity in isolation. You have to have a community of men and women that are surrounding you, that are calling you forward, and that are struggling with you. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ, but you've not found a group of men and women to come around you and to do life with and to struggle with and to grow with, you need to do that this week. One of the key applications for you this morning is that you would find community here at Grace Bible Church. If you're a college student, we have uh, college grace groups that are cranked up and rolling. If you're uh, an adult, we have all different kinds of home groups, Sunday morning groups, uh, Bible studies throughout the week, first call for the men on Tuesday mornings at 6. We have all different kinds of community opportunities. There's no lone wolves in the Christian life. So if you have not found community, what you've got to do this week is you've got to commit yourself to a community. Say, I'm done trying to do this all by myself. I'm going to step into community. I'm going to do life with people. I'm going to surround myself with some people who are moving in the same direction. And so for some of you, in the midst of whatever struggle you're facing, that's your takeaway or one of your takeaways this morning. Find community this morning. Find it this week. Come talk to me after the service. Email our staff. There's a whole host of stuff online. You can find out the right small group for you. Find community Pay the cost to step into community, the cost of your time, the cost of your humility and your vulnerability. Pay that cost and step into it. But for some of you guys, you're dealing with stuff and you're dealing with struggles that are of an extent and an intensity that are really, really deep. Uh, Maybe they're based on addiction to substances. Maybe they're based on some trauma in the past. And, And frankly, you might need a unique kind of community to really help you sort through those things. So one of the things I want to highlight for some of you guys is celebrate recovery. Specifically, you're dealing with hurts, habits, or some hang-ups. It is a wonderful, unique community with a kind of transparency that it doesn't matter what you're dealing with. No one's going to go, oh oh my, really? Maybe you should keep that packed away for a little bit. No, no, no. Celebrate Recovery is the kind of community that says, no, 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 bring it in. Let's unpack it together and let's wrestle through that together. So if you're dealing with some hurts, habits, hang-ups, Tuesday nights right here at Southwood 630, you can just walk on in. It's going to be a place of transparency. It's going to be a place of authenticity. It's going to be a place of safety for you to go, here's who I am and here's what I'm dealing with and I need some help. So for you, you could be jumping into any community here at Grace or if you're really dealing with some stuff, Celebrate Recovery could be a wonderful place for you. Tuesday night's right here, 6.30 at Southwood. Community is absolutely vital. And really, as we step into community, it also begs and forces us to realize the absolute necessity of humility. That's why I love in verse 22, again, he says, uh, Do it with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Uh, If our deacons want to go ahead and get set up in the back and grab elements, if the worship team wants to begin to make their way up front. But really, I I think the last thing we're going to see as we develop our community is that it absolutely requires from us humility. That's why he says that we're to do it with those who call on the Lord. That it's not just any specific community, but it's a community that is characterized by humility that says, it's okay, we're going to be real with each other that we're going to be honest with where we've been, with what we've done, with who we've seen and who we've been with, and we're going to be completely humble and honest and transparent with one another. That we're not going to build our lives in such a way that there are areas that no one else can see, but we're going to say, hey, here is who I am, here is where I am. And so as our deacons come forward and as they pass out the elements, I I want to challenge you to consider this morning, we're going to celebrate communion as elements are being passed out, and what communion was for the early church was this corporate moment that they were reminded of not just the fact that they came into a relationship with Jesus Christ absolutely freely on the basis of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. 
but as a moment and as a reminder for the church as they continued on in that walk with Jesus Christ that just like they needed Jesus from the beginning, they need Jesus for the rest of their lives until they're actually in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so as the elements are being passed out, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to think through and process a bit for yourselves. As we've been talking about purity this morning, where is the area of compromise for you? Where is the area that you've built some cloak and dagger secrecy that you've not allowed people to see? And maybe you've not even come to the Lord to be honest about it. And what we want to do this morning is provide you an opportunity and a moment this morning to do business with the Lord and to say, Lord, here is where I am. It's not that you don't know it. It's not that you haven't seen it. It's not that you haven't been watching. But I want to come before you and I want to speak forth those words to you to say, here is where I've been. Here's what I've been struggling with. Uh, we find in 1 Corinthians 11, we'll look at this passage in a minute, but it talks about that we are to take the elements as those that are of the church, believers in Jesus Christ, and we're to not do it without examination, meaning we're supposed to try and to test our hearts. And as we come before the elements that we'll take in a minute here, uh, that we're supposed to stop and say, Lord, what is it that you want to reveal to me? Where is it that you want to push me? I think there's not a more appropriate morning for us to take communion as a church body than this kind of morning as we've been talking about purity that determines our nobility for service, to say, Lord, I want to be redeemed. I want to be restored. I want to not continue to press forward in this area of compromise, but I want to turn the corner and I want to come back. So I'm going to allow the guys to play for a little bit and allow you guys to have some silence just to process before the Lord as to what he has for you and where he's leading you this morning. First Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul writes this, speaking of community, says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so church, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the visual reminder of communion. That on the basis of your son's death and resurrection, as his body was broken, his blood was shed, we have the opportunity to enter into a relationship with you absolutely freely. So I pray for anyone this morning, Lord, that's here thinking about purity and thinking about their own failures, wrestling with, what do I do? How do I develop this purity for them? Really, this beginning step is to simply enter into a relationship with you. Say, I I need a savior. I need one who paid a a cost that should have been mine, who would stand in my place and suffer a death that should have been mine. But there's nothing I can do to ever get out of this purity struggle with things that seem larger and bigger than myself. And so for some that are here this morning, if they don't know you, thank you that what you've asked us for is not productivity, not morality, but you've called us to a relationship and said, I'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so I pray for them this morning, Lord, that this morning could be the day that they, they choose to trust you, they choose to enter a relationship with you for the first time. For us as a church body of those that are struggling hypocrites, that know what we've been called to, but in each and every day, temptation is around the corner and we crack the door and we compromise. And whether they're little or whether they're large, there's this thing in us that thinks, Why does it matter after I've broken this thing? 
Why does it matter if I've gone this far? What does it matter anymore? And I thank you that our character is not a score or a test that we flunk it and it's over and there's no recovery, Lord. I thank you that you redeem, that you restore, that you move into the messes and the stories that we could never have imagined and that you work beautiful things out of those. That you're a forgiving and a gracious God. And yet I also just ask for us as we stand in the middle of those moments where temptation does come around the door and it knocks. Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to see that there is a cost to compromise, Lord, and that you would allow today to be a day that we remember that, yes, we are forgiven, but you've also called us to go and to sin no more, Lord, that today would be a day that we would commit ourselves in a fresh way to not just confess, but to turn away from and to move in a new direction in a different way. That today would be a day that we'd say, I'm no longer going to continue to do this in isolation and secrecy, Lord, that we're going to bring people into our lives and say, here is what's happening we're going to invite ourselves into a community. We're going to thrust ourselves into a community. And we're going to take the risk to be transparency. We're going to move forward in humility towards you and toward a community at large, Lord, that we could struggle together. Lord, my heart for this place and for this church, Lord, that you would allow us to be the kinds of people that wouldn't just put on the Southern Texas uh, Christian bubble kind of mindset of we got it all together, everything's good but that we would be the kind of community, the kind of church body that would say, here is where we're struggling. Here is where I need help. I don't have it all together. In fact, I'm quite far from that. And that we would invite people in and that we would do life with each other, that we would be gracious where people are, that we would call the people forward by your grace and by your mercy, Lord, for our own individual lives and for this church body as well. Lord, challenge us, call us forward in new ways towards purity this week, to step into a community to flee forth from those things that are tripping us up and to run after righteousness, peace, and after your son, Jesus Christ, to be transformed in his image, to find in his face and in his person a beauty and a majesty that blows everything else out of the water, that has no other parallel, that our hearts would find in him a delight and a pursuit that we want him and nothing more and nothing else. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit we pray. Amen. You guys grow. Have a great Sunday. Had a great week. Love you guys.